You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. We will get to the show in just a second, but I want to tell you a little bit about one of our sponsors. Uh, It's 2015, and everyone is a writer in 2015, whether you're working on a novel or a story, if you're writing a press release, website copy, a white paper, even if you're just tweeting all the time, uh, if you're working on some email to all of your colleagues and you keep revising it and revising it, writing has become a huge part of our day-to-day responsibilities. And just like any skill, writing doesn't get better without instruction and practice. That's why Marketing Profs University has created the Marketing Writing Bootcamp. It's an online course. It starts June 11th, and you'll learn from over a dozen of the best and brightest instructors in the world of marketing writing. You get tons of great writing tips, and best of all, you can get them wherever and whenever you want. The whole course is online. You can do it on your computer, your tablet, your smartphone, uh, all you need to do is go to mprofs.com slash longform. That's mprofs.com slash longform. Use the code longform when you check out, and you get $200 off the Marketing Writing Bootcamp. Plus, you'll get over a grand worth of Marketing Prof seminars, classes, and video tutorials, all for free. So go to mprofs.com slash longform. Learn to write better emails. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host, Evan Ratliff. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Aaron's uh, never coming home. No, probably not. I, I don't see why he would. He's in Japan. I just saw, I saw a picture of him. Uh, uh, I was telling you this, but I saw a picture of him uh, in a like cat cafe. They have these cat cafes in Tokyo <laughs> where you just go hang out with cats. And uh, it, it, was, uh, it was the happiest I've ever seen that man. Yeah. Well, I, I think he's probably found his home. <laughs> Such joy. Such joy. He may open up and own a cat cafe in <laughs> Tokyo, uh, but in his absence, who did you uh, who did you interview this week? Oh, uh, Evan, I, I interviewed uh, Anna Sale. Anna Sale uh, is the host of a show called Death, Sex, and Money. It's a podcast from WNYC. Uh, it is about uh, death, sex, and money, and it's an interview show. She does these interviews with sometimes with famous people, sometimes with uh, not famous people. Sometimes the whole show is just her listeners. Uh, sending her like voice memos mm-hmm. on a theme, uh, and it's just great. A- Anna is uh, uh, a really exceptional interviewer, and uh, it was really it was really fun to talk to her. It was a little like intimidating to interview her because she's such a good interviewer. Did you get any tips about interviewing? I we did. Could, we got we into could that. make our own <laughs> got, better. Yeah, it, like half of her tips were like, "Don't do exactly what you just did. <laughs> <laughs> just stop. You know what you just did? Don't ever do that again." But that was exciting, and I, I was really I was really uh, happy to have her on. Great. I'm excited to hear it. Uh, there's some other exciting. There's news, man. There's yeah, exciting we, news. We're we're full of news this time. So my news is that uh, for people who uh, don't know, uh, there's a lot of changes happening at Atavist. You should know about one of which is we redesigned and relaunched our software platform last week. If you go to Atavist.com, you can check it out. You can make a story. Lots of uh, publications use it, like California Sunday Magazine. Uh, lots of individuals use it. Uh, for all sorts of things, their own stories, stories associated with different publications. You know, we use it. Longform uses it for their long-form reprints. That's why they look so great. Um, So there's that. And then also we did another thing, which is at the Atavis Magazine side, which is now officially called the Atavis Magazine. Uh, We created what's called a metered paywall where you can read a certain number of stories for for free. That number is three. (laughs) So uh, go read some stories if you haven't before. There's our most recent one is called Red Falcon. It's by Ronan Bergman. It's a crazy spy story. Yeah. It's probably the most deeply reported story we've ever done. Life and Times of Stopwatch Gang by Josh Dean. Was our one before. 
These are stories that if you were too cheap to buy them before, you can go check out a few. Lots of stories we talked about on the podcast. Yep. Uh, the Higginbotham story. Yep. A Thousand Pounds of Dynamite. Dead Moo Alum story. American Hippopotamus. These are good stories, people. You can go all the way back. Brooke Jarvis, uh, When We Are Called Apart. I love that story. Uh, Leslie Jameson. So it's okay go dig if, in. If you've been like a cheap bastard so far, that's fine. Don't, no, no shame. But now you can go read these stories for yeah. free. Go you pillage the archives for three stories and then subscribe. Uh, one other shout out, like plug that I just wanted to make. Our editor, Jenna Weiss Berman, is also the director of audio at BuzzFeed, and she just launched uh, their first two podcasts. And one of these podcasts is called Another Round. Yeah. Have you listened to it yet? A little bit. It's uh, it's hosted by uh, two women, Heaven and Tracy. And uh, I got to tell you, man, you like within thirty seconds of listening to it. I've listened to all of them, and they're great. And you should go listen to them. But within like thirty seconds of listening to it. You're just like, oh, uh, you know what? It doesn't have to only be 30-something white dudes who do these podcasts. <laughs> Shocking turn of events. Uh, it, it, it's not like a law. That wasn't a rule somewhere. Thank God. It, they're just great. They're hilarious, and uh, they've got some fantastic stories, and uh, I really recommend that you go listen to that show. I'm sort of afraid to listen to it, because I feel like after I listen to it, I'm going to be like, we should just shut it down. We, we, uh, that is a distinct experience you'll have, Yeah, and uh, we can talk about that. We can talk about it. All right. We'll work through that <laughs> afterwards, but you should go listen to it. Uh, Jenna's worked really hard on it. She's an amazing editor, and uh, and they got amazing hosts, so uh, check it out. What about Sponsors. Sponsors. Uh, our friends at Tiny Letter are sponsoring the show this week. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. Uh, they have continued to sponsor the show. If we do decide to shut it down, uh, <laughs> the only reason we haven't done that so far is because Tiny Letter has made this show possible, and we thank them uh, once again for their sponsorship. And now here is Max with Anna Sale. Hey, Anna Sale. Hi. It's really good to have you here. Thank you for having me. We're here. It's early in the morning. Yeah. How are you doing? You feeling all right? I feel okay. I got beat up by a baby this morning. Oh, no. <laughs> it's kind of like embarrassing to admit. How but, long ago did you wake up? Uh, like a couple, several hours ago. Yeah. But I, uh, I, you can hear my voice. I'm not like feeling super good. And um, my kid uh, just learned how to clap. That's like the <laughs> stage he's at. He learned how to clap. That's exciting. Yeah. And so we were like uh, practicing uh, clapping. And he just like clapped me right in the face. And I didn't, you wouldn't think like a baby, he's a very small child, he's six months old. You wouldn't think a baby would be able to hurt a full grown man. But he, I think maybe just because of like his like tiny hands, his very, very tiny hands, he was able to like punch me like right in the sinus, which is not even a thing that I thought like you would think is possible. I didn't even know the sinus is like a body part that's accessible from the outside. But his tiny baby hand, like, Really just nailed per- you. <laughs> really just perfectly found me in the sinus. <laughs> so <laughs> the first of many humiliating moments as a father. Oh, I I'm already, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it wasn't even close to the first. <laughs> Not even close. But I appreciate you. I uh, appreciate you being here, and I've really been. I'm. I'm really excited that you're here, Anna Sale. Thank you. Because um, I don't know if like maybe this is showing my cards too early. I am a big fan of your show. Thanks. I uh, I love it. It launched like uh, almost a year ago. Mm-hmm. And I've listened to them all, and I remember listening to that first one with Al Simpson, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's just great. I've been really looking forward to talking to you. So thank you for uh, thank you for coming in. I'm interested in the in the origins of your show, Anna, Death, Sex, and Money. Okay, how did you come up with the show? There was this contest at WNYC, and and I got an email from from Chris Bannon, who was my boss at the time, and he he said, "We want to develop new shows. We have a contest. Pitch your dream show." And so I is that was, normally how like radio stations program their stuff? No, it was awesome. It was this awesome dream memo that like I have kept because it just was such a cool thing. It's like, okay, in the back of your head, if you're feeling unsatisfied with your current job, like here's your shot. I was covering politics at the time, and I was I was just trying to like, I was tired. I had been covering campaigns. I covered the 2012 presidential election, then I covered the 2013 mayoral election here in New York City, and it was it was great. It's it's really fun to cover campaigns uh, to a point, but when you cover too, too many too many hours of campaign coverage stacked up one over the other, I was sort of like, huh? What if I could do something else? What would it be? So I'm walking my dog, and the name Death, Sex, and Money kind of came to me, um, and I thought it was funny that it was DSM after like the psychiatric yeah. manual, because and it was like, wow, those are the things that kind of sums up what we worry about. It kind of sums up the big 
existential questions about, you know, death, like you know, what it means for us to to find purpose in our lives and the fact that we're not going to be here forever, sex, you know, relationships and choices about family, money, you know, status and survival. And and I just sort of thought, what if, what if a stru- show is structured around not avoiding these things that we all know that we kind of worry about, but um, really goes at them uh, because we don't talk about them a lot in public space. So that was the nugget of the idea. And then I got the shot to pilot it. I was one of the finalists of the contest and then had to figure out what that sounded like. So that was the pro- that was the point where I was like, oh, my God. I actually have to do this. <laughs> what, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> yeah. So what was what was your first step? So like you're, you're like, all right, this political reporting is getting like a little tiresome. Uh, I'm like in the scrum all the time. It's kind of bullshit. And uh, I'm just gonna... I wouldn't say that. I think it's very honorable and it's necessary for democracy. And I, I would go back to it. But I, I just needed a little break. Um, and, and so it was nice to have this opportunity. So but your idea of a little break was like, let's talk about the, the big questions. Yeah. Let's yeah, go let's... for the big questions. And maybe I, I thought like maybe it was a response to some of the artifice of political dialogue. It's like, let's not talk. Let's, no, artifice, let's, like, is, actually... artifice is a much better word than bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> let's like go go there. So, yeah. So that was the idea. So I was at a job and I was given a, an amount of time to pilot. So that will get you starting on your podcast idea pretty fast. You know, <laughs> I, I've heard from a lot of people who are like, I have this idea for a podcast. So I'll try it out. But um, I had to start collecting tape to figure out what it sounded like. Uh, and the first interview I ended up doing was this woman, Heidi Reinberg. She's in one of the first episodes of Death, Sex, and Money. Uh, she's a friend of a friend who, who I just heard about that she had lived in New York City for 30 years. Um, she lived in her apartment in Brooklyn for 11 years. She was a freelancer who worked in video production. She's in her in mid-50s. And she just found out from her landlord that she was going to have to move out because her landlord was selling the building. And she kind of looked up and realized she couldn't afford this life that she had built. And I talked to her, uh, just recorded a conversation with her because I thought that that is like the big fear yeah. that, that all of these small choices that you make along the way, thinking you're going to be okay at a certain point when you look up and realize, oh my, something was gone pretty wrong here. Um, so that's where I caught her, where she was evaluating the choices she'd made around career, around relationships, around where to live in the country. And that tape was just, I, I didn't know what to do, how to structure it or what the episode would sound like. But I, I first cut this like two and a half minute clip of her. I, I asked her where she thought she might go. And she just lets out this huge exhale and says, I don't know. And then she starts saying, what I'm really looking for is home. And I don't know where that is. I then would play play that for people around the station, kind of trying to figure out what to do with the tape. And and I can remember people's, the look on their faces when they heard that. It was like anxiety. It was hitting something really deep, but also this deep feeling of recognition, like, oh, I, I know that. Yeah. I know that fear. And so that became one of the first episodes. And since then, I've stayed in touch with Heidi and, and recorded a, a, a few other interviews with her. And, and I think we're going to do something with her around the first anniversary of the show in May because her life has continued on. But that was that was the first like, OK, this is something. It's like I want the show to feel like this. And then it became figuring out how to do that. I mean, what is this? Like, what what do you mean when you say that? What what did it feel like? That felt, I guess, different. I mean, you'd been a public radio reporter for a long time. What felt different about that tape? It felt so deeply uh, personal because she had kind of this space and the quiet to like be thinking about an answer, and then to like not have the answer. It felt really intimate. It felt recognizable. It felt. Like it was hitting on something that that a lot of people in you know urban areas are grappling with yeah. the, the spiraling cost of housing. My my hope for the listener is often like I've been feeling something like this and haven't uh, found company around it and haven't maybe articulated it exactly yet. But when I listen to Death, Sex, and Money, I'm going to come away feeling like, well, at least at least I'm not the only one, <laughs> you know. And that that's sort of the hope for the show. What I liked about it is she wasn't famous. She she didn't, you know, there was nothing um, extraordinary about her story other than uh, that we were catching her right in this moment of transition. And so one of the ideas early on in the show was to, to, 
to interview people who people listeners will not have heard of, people who have lived everyday lives, and then also talk to people who are well-known but who haven't talked about these sort of universal questions and moments of transition. And so yeah, that I mean, was that was the idea. Episode two was Bill Withers, right? Mm-hmm. Who like there's a like a pretty well known documentary mm-hmm. about him. Still Bill. It's fantastic. It is amazing. Yeah. It, it's super inspiring. And that episode yeah. with him was also super inspiring. Yeah. Can I tell you the story of that episode? That yeah, was just like I had no idea what the show was and I was like, I have no idea what Bill Withers would have to say on death, sex or money, but I do know that whatever he has to say I want to hear it because, you know, he's he's not done you know, there's that documentary, but there's kind of a spattering of interviews over the years since he sort of stopped touring. Um, but he just wisdom just drops out of his mouth uh, in these pearls, and so that that was the idea for that interview. It was like I just want to know what he has to say about anything. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Bill Withers is like a little bit like of a of a home run. Like I would, mm-hmm. I you, we could just right now mm-hmm. go like stick a microphone in Bill Withers' mouth and just have him talking. It would be fantastic. But I'm interested in how you pick people for the show like what you're looking for and how like intimate relatable vulnerable like all of those uh things are totally true about i think almost every episode you've done i'm interested both in how you get people to go there but also how you know that they're going to be willing to i mean it's a guess it's always i think this person might have something to say about this we we put out the first three episodes all at once um so but the the other episode that came out with heidi and bill withers was one that was about me and my love life and former Senator Alan Simpson of Wyoming, which was this crazy story that actually happened in my real life as I was figuring out how to pilot the show. And so then I realized I was going to have to make radio out of how I didn't know what to do in my love life, <laughs> uh, which was a leap. But but that interview, basically, um, my I was broken up with my boyfriend, my boyfriend throws this Hail Mary and writes a letter to former Senator Alan Simpson and asks him to intervene and give me a call to help us get back together. And we did get back together uh, with their help, with Alan Simpson and his wife, Anne, who they've been married for 60 years. And so we met, we talked about relationships through this phone call. And then I said, can I actually interview you? Because I think I learned a lot from you about commitment and getting through difficult times. And I think people who would listen to my radio show would also learn something from you. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, just like stop this and go listen to it. I don't I don't want to spoil it, but that episode takes a surprising turn. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are, I mean, we, that's, should we not talk about what that turn well, is? Well, it takes a turn. I, I, can, I can give a little preview, but okay, the turn yeah. is like, it starts out by me saying, I didn't know what I was doing in my love life. And I met these, you know, this elder statesman and his wife and started talking to them about that. And then they started talking about the difficulties in their marriage and when they sought couples counseling from their church and what they realized about sex in marriage and how, you know, needing to talk about that. And and then they also talked about uh, the Anita Hill testimony in which Alan Simpson was very aggressive in his questioning of her during the Clarence Thomas uh, nomination hearings, um, confirmation hearings. So there, there's many layers to that story. And I will say, like, I knew that Alan Simpson was somebody who sort of has this way of just kind of breaking things down and, and talking straight. So I thought he and his wife together talking about relationships would be would be interesting. But I had, had no idea how open they were going to be about some very personal details in their lives. And so, so that's sort of the, the best case scenario in a death, sex, and money interview where you where I have a, a hunch that, that they'll go there with me and then where I leave just totally surprised by what what we've talked about. Yeah, I mean, where they went is like pretty uncharted territory. Like I, I, I don't actively seek out retired politicians talking about their sex lives, but that's the first time I've heard a retired <laughs> politician talk about his sex life. And not in a gratuitous way, in a way that's actually like, you know, you can put it to use in your relationship. Yeah. Like, oh, this is something we have to talk about. I mean, is that one of the driving forces of the show? Like, not just your own curiosity, but like things you're actually interested in learning, like uh, oh, yeah. things you can apply to your own life? Yes. <laughs> There's definitely a selfish motivation. <laughs> it's like, huh, have you done life? Tell me about this. And you're just like uh, picking up these morsels and, and putting them in your like rucksack? Yeah. But also sharing them, which is very nice. Yes. <laughs> Appreciate yes. it. I'm sharing my path to enlightenment. <laughs> you're welcome. 
Hey, I'm going to pause things for a second and tell you a little bit about a couple of our sponsors this week. First up is a new sponsor. It's called The Great Courses. Uh, and The Great Courses is maybe what you think. They've got over 500 courses. Uh, it's all online. You can get them as downloads or streaming, uh, DVDs or CDs. Uh, everything from literature to history, science, and more. They've been around for 25 years, and they get real professors, like top-tier professors, to come in and teach courses. Uh, one of those courses is called Writing Creative Nonfiction. And if you've been listening to this show, listening to these sort of like top journalists talk about their craft and maybe been inspired, maybe wondered how to do it yourself, I think you'd really like this course, Writing Creative Nonfiction from The Great Courses. Uh, it's taught by Professor Talar J. Matseo. She's an award-winning professor at Colby College. She's a New York Times bestselling author, and she really walks you through all of the basics of creative nonfiction. So here's what you should do. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash longform. That's thegreatcourses.com slash longform. You can order up to eight of their best-selling courses, including writing creative nonfiction, at up to 80% off the original price. So go check it out, thegreatcourses.com slash longform. Thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. Thanks also to Wealthfront. You've been hearing me tell you about uh, Wealthfront lately. Wealthfront is the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Their software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors in the world, all for just a quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Here's how they do it. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. It's overseen by a team of investment experts, the same people who launched the index fund revolution and who have written some of the most important books in finance. Uh, what else can I tell you about Wealthfront? They manage over $2 billion in client assets. That's billion with a B. And they've saved millions of dollars on taxes for their clients. Uh, so go to wealthfront.com slash longform. You'll get your first 10 grand managed for free. And as always, just so we're clear here, this is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, people. There's the possibility of losing money. Thanks very much to Wealthfront for continuing to sponsor the show. And uh, let's get back to Anna Sale. When you're talking about Al Simpson and, and, and his wife and uh, their openness and uh, straightforwardness, their disposition is certainly part of that. But I think you also seem to have a relatively uh, unique talent for getting people to go there and open up. And I'm interested in uh, how you do that. Yeah, I've been thinking about that because I, I don't know. I think, I think one of the th things that happens in an interview where someone opens up and talks about something they haven't talked about before. Often it's the best, most interesting part of the conversation is the result of a follow-up question where someone has used a word or said something to be like, oh, that was, that was terrible or that, you know, and then me just saying, well, tell me about that. What was that like? And so I, I think it's just the result of listening like feeling listened to, that people open up. The other thing I think, this is like, I look like a crazy person when I'm doing interviews because sometimes someone will be describing something to me and I am I will close my eyes and try to like picture what they're telling me. And if I can't picture the moment they're describing, I'll try to dig in a little bit more to be like, well, so you show up in Nashville and all your friends are getting famous and you're not. And what was going on? Like trying to get the memory and the storytelling as concrete as possible. And through that, there's usually kind of revelatory tape because it's easy to talk in, in kind of um, familiar or sort of cliched terms around death, sex, and money, you know? Yeah. So to get to the specific and to get to the moments of like, this is really how it felt when I didn't know what the hell to do. Like to get somebody to describe that, then you're like, oh. Thanks, you too. <laughs> you know? yeah. So there, I think, yeah, I think those are those are two things that I try to pay attention to. I mean, there's an element of trust in those conversations too. There are uh, a handful of moments I can think of that not only would people not normally go there on the radio, they wouldn't even go there with friends. Like, they wouldn't even go there at the bar. I, I wonder where you think that trust comes from. I don't know. It's something about feeling listened to, you know? I, I mean, I do think it is a deeply empowering thing for somebody to ask 
you to tell your story. I think that, that you, when you sit down and it's quiet and you have time and I've set up ahead of time that there is the intention that we're, this is a show about moments of life transition and about talking about things that we often sort of skirt around and that it's recorded and that it's, you know, if I ask a question they don't want to answer, they don't have to answer it. So you kind of create that, that, those ground rules for, for, a, for a safe interaction and then, then it happens. Does that happen often that people uh, say, like, I don't want to go there? No. <laughs> That's the one of the things I think about in the course of an interview is when I know I'm getting to a place that's raw or tender or deeply personal or about someone who's not in the room, you know, if someone's talking about a, a previous relationship, it's figuring out just how much to, to push. Uh-huh being sensitive to that and sometimes sometimes I ask maybe one question too many and it's clear that like the door is closing on that <laughs> right. um, I, I sort of try as gingerly as possible to kind of get to you know why why is that so raw or why is that tender there's an element of what you're describing I never I never done therapy before I don't mm-hmm. really like my concept of therapy you gotta get into it man <laughs> yeah, I hear it's I hear it's, it's awesome I hear it's great <laughs> I've been really wanting to try it. Uh, so my concept of therapy is very much like from like uh, like popular culture kind of, like movies and TV and stuff. But there's an element of what you're talking about that feels like therapy, knowing when to like push, knowing when to pull back, letting people, helping people feel comfortable, uh, letting them be listened to. I mean, like maybe because I'm just like a cheap bastard and wouldn't go to therapy. So your show is kind of like therapy for me a little bit. Free on iTunes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, but I, I, I wonder, uh, what do you think of that? What, what, what do you think of the kind of like therapeutic aspects of your show? The way I hope it's therapeutic is that it makes the listener, makes you feel like, oh, this like thing that I haven't put words to that was hard for me, like this person is articulating something familiar. That's therapeutic, just to not feel alone. Do you think it's therapeutic for the guests? Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, like, I, I have heard from people who've been on the show who've said, like, you made me think about things and say things in a way that I never thought about in my life. You're, you know, and just like, you know, when you're, when you're, when someone's asking you details about your life, it's a, it's a, it's already kind of an artificial environment. And so, but it can, you know, when you say, say something about your life in a way that you hadn't thought about it before, it's like, oh, that's changes the way that I think about things. Is it therapeutic for you? Oh, yeah. Big time. How so? I mean, the root of all this stuff is like, how did you do this thing? You know, it's like, it's a, it's a just, you know, a quest to understand how life works. What have you learned? The thing that I think about a lot is really appreciating that there's not going to be a moment of, of feeling like I've got life locked down because if I get my relationship in order and, you know, my family's in a good place, then, you know, somebody could get sick or I could lose my job and, and that life is these serious, you know, it's obvious, but just to like really appreciate that, like, you can't be on your heels, you know, and, and it's made me feel really appreciative of like when things are feel good. I, I, I like have found I, I'm getting very Buddhist and in, in, from doing death, sex and money and just like, I am grateful for this moment, you know? <laughs> Well, because, it seems like it seems like you're in a good moment. You're like about to get married. You yeah, got this, you got this hit show. I'm very grateful for this moment. I feel really. Uh, I like making this show. It's really fun. I feel proud of it, and uh, I'm in love. I'm getting married, and I finally feel like New York City is not totally kicking my ass. <laughs> <laughs> so that's 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 good. Yeah. I have a theory about this show and maybe how it's been therapeutic. Okay. Can I, I can I give you this theory? And sure. You can tell me whether or not or how it sounds. It seems like you're like a like high achiever person, kind of never really fucked up. Maybe yeah, is that right? You, you yeah, th- yeah. Mastery was something that I like. Yeah, I, f- I felt like my, highly competent. Highly competent. Yeah. But uh, there's a there's like a there's like a uh, a second part of that which is not screwing up. Yeah. Right. Like there's there's one thing to be like top of the class, but there's another thing to like not fail a test. Yeah, and to and to have luck. So I had all those things going for me okay, growing so you, up. You had yeah. all those things. A running theme in the show is you talking to really wise, at peace, really strong women who have been divorced. 
Mm-hmm. And you're going there, man. I'm going there. <laughs> I'm going there. Should I not go there? No, it's fine. You have referenced your own divorce many times on the show, but never actually really talked about it, mm-hmm. it all that much. Mm-hmm. Listening to them sort of back to back in the way that I have for the last couple of days, it seems like that is a thing you're trying to figure out through these conversations. Definitely. But, and, but more broadly, it's like the way I experienced divorce was my life is now something that I had never, it's not what I, the path I thought I was on. It's not what I thought I was building. And all of a sudden, I can remember when I, when I was first in the, in the first months of, of kind of dealing with it, it was, I can remember feeling like I, there was no gravity and I was just, had lost all sense of grounding. And that was really scary. That, that feeling was really scary for me. And so, like, for me, it was going through my divorce, but it's other people have something that happens in their lives when they're five and six years old or, you know, whatever. And, but it's some moment where you realize, like, I'm not in total control here. Uh-huh. And so how do I respond and survive and, like, find comfort? Because that sense of having the, the rug ripped out from under you is so viscerally terrifying, or it was for me. That is sort of something I'm trying to, that I'm just curious, like stories about that. Stories about how people sort of recovered from that moment? Yeah, and then also like what it unleashes. It's yeah. like the other thing that, you know, you can sort of notice is like some of the women that I've talked to who've been divorced, like then they just own, O-W-N, their lives. Like it's like got rid of like all of that, you know, um, scaffolding, and now I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want, you know, and that's what, this is what that looks like. You know, it's, I think that there's something also, when everything falls apart, it's very liberating, and you can, you know, I think about uh, Louis C.K. sometimes when I think about divorce, like, you know, he was one kind of comedian when he was talking about his family on stage and talking about his wife, and then after he got divorced, he's a different kind of comedian. Yeah. And so I think it's like going through that, pain and kind of being unleashed can be really uh, freeing. Has it been helpful in processing that? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to parse out what has been the result of this show and what has been the result of healing, you know, in other ways and also being in a new relationship and having a wonderful partner. You know, that's, it's hard to, but, but like, um, I think they have fed each other, like what's happening in my personal life and what's what I'm exploring in the show. I feel just like braver. Once something falls apart that you're trying to hold together, you're just like, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to try this. <laughs> you know, it's like I, you know, that that what I can remember about the end of a marriage and is like trying with all your might to hold something together that's like becoming sand under your fingers and like how sad that is. But like once it falls apart, it's like, fuck it. Let me try this. Now I'm going to be a woman who's going to OWN her life. Yeah. Do you feel like a woman who's owning your life? Uh, yes. I, I don't know. Yeah, try to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, it seemed very clear from the from the those first three episodes you put out that like. Uh, one idea was talk to normal people who are not in the public eye about their like real life problems. Second was try and like show this other side of people you are familiar with and maybe do know. And maybe the third was like, are we going to like get deep on Anna Sale or not? Yeah. But then there's this, which we have, I feel like I know you very well. Uh, but there's this kind of fourth, I guess, kind of show that's emerged, which is you just kind of put out a theme to your listeners and just have them kind of sound off. And there was the living alone one, but the the latest one you did was on cheating. And it's just like, uh, it's like stop you in your tracks radio. Like, it was some gripping, yeah. compelling shit. And it was really, it was really entertaining. It's really, <laughs> it's really entertaining. And also like, very, very scary. Yeah. Scary. Like I had so many feelings putting that episode together because it's stories of cheaters and people who were cheated on. It's just shit you never get to hear. Yeah. That was it. I was like, oh, this is happening in everyday life. Like people are choosing how to see their boyfriend, you know, so their husband doesn't find out. Or people are texting in the living room with their boyfriend, you know, when their husband is in the room. Um, 
where people are discovering that their partners have these online accounts and seeking other partners that you don't know about. I mean, it's it gets that very like like deep, deep feelings of shame and deep, deep feelings of humiliation, and also like the question. I think the reason it's so uh, disturbing to listen to is you keep going back to like. Am I capable of this? Yeah. Well, that's like when uh, something tragic happens to uh, particularly to someone you know, right? Like say someone gets very sick unexpectedly, hit, hit by a bus, whatever, right? And you have this brief access to really feeling how tenuous and fragile all mm-hmm. this is, how quickly these things you take for granted can fall away. And I hadn't ever really thought of cheating that way. Mm-hmm. And that's what that episode did was just like, it can completely break that facade kind of immediately. And but it can happen to anyone. It can happen to anyone. And it's not even like, it's not this like, no one wakes up in the morning and just says, I'm going to have an affair today. You right. know, it's like this slow accumulation of flirting over email with your work colleague. Yeah. And then it starts to feel really comfortable. And then it starts to feel enticing and hearing people talk about that process is scary right it's not it's not like some other world where people do that it's people just like you and me yeah it reminded me like also that cheating is not about sex with other people in a relationship it reminded me that the pain and the you know the source of the the great harm of cheating is betrayal and it reminded me just again of like you just got to talk about stuff with your partner. Are you wired that way in your normal life? Like, are you? <laughs> Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> um, a refrain in my household has become, Anna, every conversation does not need to be a death, sex, and money conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Which I appreciate. It's part of that because you're, like, uh, you're like, this could maybe be like good radio. <laughs> Sounds like we're going deep here. What's, you know, it's not even radio. It's like that is that is my, like, I've been wired that way. I love that, like, deep, intimate conversation that you have with somebody in the corner of a table at a dinner party who you just met. Like, that is what fires me up. Like You're, you're looking for those moments. Oh, yeah. And you'll put yourself out there. Yeah. Were you like that as a as a kid growing up in West Virginia? Yeah, I think so. Part of me, I'm like, oh, God, have I just, are there social cues that I never learned? <laughs> you know? but, but I don't think so. I think they've been uh, on balance, positive experiences from people I've come across in my life. <laughs> you had, um, you grew up with four sisters. Uh-huh. It was that like the culture of your household? Like, did you guys, did you guys talk it out? Were you a talk it out family? Oh, big time. Yeah. I mean, especially like I'm the fourth of the five daughters. So like the, the like conversations you get to have with your older sisters around like, you know, they're not your parents. They're going to get real. They're going to tell you how the <laughs> world really works, you know? So that was, I think, really important in, in my kind of growing up was like I had these older guides. They're, they're, my older sisters are 9 and 11 years older than me, like, you know, breaking it down. Do you get nervous before you ask those like intimate hard questions? I guess I think the thing I get nervous about is like, I hope I say this in just the right way. When I'm preparing for an interview, it's like, what's the way I want to go into this conversation so that we go to an interesting place or that's the nerve. It's like, I hope I manage this conversation well. Do you manage conversations differently? Like when you're saying, I, w- I hope I manage this conversation well, is that not just like your default mode? Do you know, well, you know what I'm saying? Um, it's my default mode, but the other thing when you're recording and when you're interviewing is no one wants to hear an interviewer you know, stumble around and try to find the right word to ask them, is this how you felt or were you, well, uh, you know, like it's, it's, I want to, I want to have thought through exactly what I want to know about something. Um, <laughs> wait, wait, it's not good to like stumble and start with your questions. <laughs> it's kind of my whole game. I mean, it happens. And that's why uh, <laughs> recording and editing in post is such a gift. Thank um, you, Jenna Weiss-Bermond. Yes. <laughs> but that's more the thing. It's like Death, Sex and Money is not a show that tries to just like go at the like, uh, provocative places for the sake of being provocative. It's 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 to get to an illuminating place. And so I want to think through, like, what is the question? Like, there's a one of the times um, I think about where I, 
I don't think I thought about this exactly ahead of time, but I think I asked just the right question. Um, was I was talking to Ellen Burstyn, the actress, and she had written in her memoir about uh, getting an illegal abortion when she was a teenager. So I knew I knew she had acknowledged this previously. So I asked her about it, and she told me why she decided to do that. And then I asked her, did anyone go with you? And she said, no, I was totally alone. And then that's when you hear, like, this is what getting an illegal abortion is. This is, like, the shame, the fear, the isolation, and the silence. Like, that question. That's the kind of follow-up that I want to make sure I have i don't miss. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a good follow-up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, here's another thing you do in these interviews I've noticed. Mm. You do a really good job of like like that Ellen Burstyn moment of putting, like placing someone in like the timeline of their life, mm-hmm. which is very helpful as a listener to sort of like be like, okay, right, that person was 19 when they were getting that illegal abortion or like whatever, 33 when their career fell apart or whatever. So I'm, I'm, I'd like to do that. Okay. I'd like to put you in some oh, moments in your life. Interesting. Sort of interesting. <laughs> uh, here, are the, here are some of the some of the ones that I'm I'm interested in. One is so you grew up in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry about the drubbing that the Kentucky Wildcats put on your team. Mountaineers forever. <laughs> and then you went to uh, you went to Stanford, uh-huh. and uh, I'm interested in uh, what that moment was like being like 18 and showing up in Palo Alto, like dot com boom times. Uh, coming from West Virginia. Was like your world expanding or was it kind of like a scary, strange time? It was both. I mean, I was, I grew up in Charleston, which is the capital city of West Virginia and one of the largest cities. And so I, I had a very typical suburban American um, childhood. So it's not exactly what people think when they hear West Virginia. But going to Stanford in 1999, so it's the fall of 99 when I show up as a freshman. And I had gone to Stanford basically because I'd toured a bunch of schools and looked on the East Coast and then visited Stanford's campus. And it was sunshine and blue sky and palm trees. And that was pretty much, okay, <laughs> I'm going to go to this one. Um, and then I was uh, you know, lucky enough to get in. And my two older sisters lived in San Francisco, so I had a sort of outpost of, of family, so it didn't feel quite so far away. So when I get to Stanford and I'm a freshman and it's the fall of 99 and there's this boom happening uh, around tech, like I didn't I didn't really like understand it at all. There, at my freshman orientation, there was this skit I can remember about um, somebody you know, preparing for an IPO, and I didn't know what that stood for. Like a college kid preparing for an yeah. IPO? Yeah. I like didn't. I was like, what is this? <laughs> um, and I worked at the bookstore uh, that fall, and I can remember like these two dudes like asking, you know, do you take options? Can I buy you? Can I buy this sweatshirt with options? You know. <laughs> This is like, what Get is this? Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> um, and I, you know, was like a liberal arts kid. I was, I ended up being a history major. So that was not my world. But uh, I found it just, I think I found it a little bit disturbing. I definitely found it disturbing. I think because it was, there was this sense of like, how can I get mine and this and this gold rush feeling around, you know, everybody, you know, we're just going to get rich. And that seemed to be sort of the dominant idea about why we were all there. And I had gone to college thinking like, oh, this is the time to explore, you know. <laughs> so it was it was weird. Uh, and I ended up having a fantastic experience, but it was, you know, through finding friends um, kind of outside of that kind of Silicon Valley ethos. Um, and looking back, like there's a lot I could have learned about entrepreneurship and, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like really coming handy right how now. to make money uh, that that I sort of was just, you know, defining myself against. But that was my reaction as a 19-year-old. And then I ended up going back to West Virginia after college. And that's where I started in radio. And yeah. When, was, like where, when, where does journalism come into this? Not until after college. So I was a history major and didn't really know thought like maybe grad school may all work for a nonprofit. I'm not really sure what I was going to do. And it was a year after college. I worked for the Sierra Club for a year in West Virginia. Um, and then 
didn't really feel like that was the right fit and readied my applications for law school like any sort of aimless <laughs> liberal arts kid. Um, <laughs> and just around right around that time, I was having a conversation with my aunt about not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life. And she said, I would just close your eyes and like, who, who are you jealous of? Whose job do you really want? And I thought about Terry Gross having no journalism experience, no radio experience. So I started sort of like, whoa, that's kind of interesting. And West Virginia Public Broadcasting had a reporter job posting that went up right around then. So my resume was all updated from my law school applications. So I applied. So Terry Gross is the model? Yeah. She's your inspiration? Yeah. What have you learned about interviewing from Terry Gross? She does this thing... You know, I've just, I mean, first of all, you you learn things about people listening to that show that you don't learn in their other interviews or profiles anywhere else. But one of the things that I really like that she does, she'll say, like, when this was happening in your life, like, did you just feel like this? And she'll describe how she thinks you might feel in some moment. And then, you know, the person will go, yes. (laughs) You know, she just has this kind of gift at being able to articulate what she imagined something might have felt like. So I just love listening to that show. So you uh, you have your Terry Gross moment. Mm-hmm. Like I'm gonna be I'm gonna do public radio, start in West Virginia, and then how do you end up in New York? I do public radio in West Virginia for three and a half years, and I'm kind of general assignment covering everything from politics to coal mining disasters where coal miners died, uh, bluegrass musicians, just sort of finding my way because the cool thing about starting in public radio is, you know, we were a small shop and every kind of town in West Virginia has their print newspaper and we were a statewide network. So we could be, you had to cover the big, big stories, but you could also be like, this is kind of interesting and nobody's explored this, you know? So it's just like the best place to learn. And I had really great editors who paid a lot of attention to helping me write and helping me learn how to not sound terrible (laughs) on the radio. (laughs) I sounded terrible for a pretty good while. It's like hard for me to imagine that. Yeah, I just didn't know what I was doing. I just thought I needed to perform when I was voicing. Um, You know, when you're when you get in front of a microphone for the first time, you know, you think, I don't know, like you think you just have to be this performer and this broadcast voice. Our our listeners should know that you just like straightened up in your chair and like uh, posture totally changed. Yeah. Professional radio woman. So I think, yes. And that's, that I think is the, I mean, the trick in radio is like finding a way to get back to your normal voice. What was your, Um, what was your like rookie voice? I think I was trying to impersonate like Nina Totenberg who covers the Supreme Court for NPR. She's very animated because she's often telling stories where there's not tape from the court. Like, I, it would be very sing-songy, my delivery. Can you, like, uh, try oh, and do an I, impression? I can't. Oh, it's so bad. Impression? Let's see. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Anna Sale. Like, just like, do 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 like, and... Uh, you should all know uh, that yeah. Anna's face just got, like, so wide. <laughs> <laughs> and not to say that Nina, Nina Tomberg has a wonderful way of reading. I sounded like a, like, just a total amateur. And I would get stopped in the grocery store by people... Um, because the thing is, when you're learning in a newsroom, in a radio newsroom, whatever you're producing is broadcast. So people hear you learning, which was a very humbling experience. And people would stop me in the grocery store and say things like, Anna, you're sounding so much better. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, oh, God. <laughs> Uh, not good, no, but better. better. Improving, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay, here's another moment. I'm going to do this Anna Sale style. Okay. You uh, you spend some time in West Virginia public radio. You spend some time in Connecticut public radio. And then uh, you and your uh, then-husband decide to move to New York. Your husband's got, going to art school, right? Yeah, going to film school at NYU. Going to film school at NYU. And you show up. And uh, you're in New York, and you don't have a job. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's 2009, and journalism is in free fall, and it's post-recession, and it was really scary. I knew we were moving uh, because... NYU, you know, the acceptance had come earlier in the spring. So I I spent, like, a period of months, like, building a phone tree of people who I might 
figure out, you know, so what, who can I meet? Who could help me work in radio in New York? And it was it was really, it was WNYC. I didn't know anybody there. It was NPR. I knew like one person there. And I can remember the first phone conversations I had. One of them, I called a guy and he's like, don't come. Just, just <laughs> turn don't it around. Come. There's no jobs. Turn it don't around. Don't come. It was a dicey time. I mean, um, had you ever not had a job before? No, I had never not had a job. And, and That's some scary shit. It was scary. It was, uh, I never not had a job. And I also felt like, really, like I felt like I would like, had kind of figured out how to do radio pretty well in West Virginia and Connecticut. And I can remember feeling so frustrated that it seemed like that didn't count. Like moving to New York, everything just had to start at square one again. Like somebody told me early on, like never give your resume to somebody in New York if you don't have a New York address already, because they just they just won't look at it. <laughs> it's so like it's so true and terrible. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh god. Um, but I ended up sort of meeting finally, like it's like being introduced by one of my NPR editors to somebody who was in WNYC and kind of finding out where where people might be needed. And I landed pretty quickly at at, um, a show called The Takeaway, and I was doing production and back-end. How did you attack that problem of landing in New York without a job? Looking back, it was like like a reporting project. It was like, I've got to just like figure out the landscape and figure out what skills I need to have that people actually need right now because this was a time when like shows are being canceled yeah i mean there was, in that moment it was kind of like will anyone have a job yeah it's like will anyone have a job it wasn't necessarily like i need to like land one of these jobs it was like are there any jobs it, it, will there ever be a job ever again yeah <laughs> yeah it was really it was scary and I, there was part of me that was like maybe i will like you know i'll, I'll figure out how to hustle and and build this freelance life. Um, But I didn't know how to do that because I'd always been um, working in newsrooms and having staff jobs. But I just kind of slowly, you know, would have coffees with people and then ask people who I should be in touch with. And I made a few, like, um, field trips to New York. And I can remember that. I can remember standing outside WNYC and watching people come out at the end of the day and, like, looking at all of them like, they have no idea. They get to work in that building, and I have no idea how to get in the door. And that sick feeling. And then I got a shot. I got, I got, I moved. And the the Friday before I moved down to New York, I sent an email to to an editor and said, you know, remember we were in touch. Like I'm, I'm, I'm coming down. I'll be in town on Monday. And I, I swear, like. Half an hour later, he emails and is like, oh, any chance you could come in Tuesday? We're a little short-staffed. And I was just like, like, after (laughs) months of just, like, you know, stomach ache and not sleeping and, you know, thinking about, like, do I have enough money saved to, like, make it? And, you know, what kind of apartment can we afford? All that stuff. Then it was just like, can you just come in for this one day? And it was like, yes, I can do that. I can definitely do that. Yeah. And then that day became more days. And then I got hired on as staff pretty quickly. But I haven't forgotten that feeling, like that feeling of like when you when you just like when you have to push yourself into that leap um, when all of your all of my I I am very comfortable with stability. (laughs) I've realized this about myself. Um, So basically every I enjoy routine and like every part of my body was telling me like you are risking your uh, safety like alarms you know adrenaline all that stuff and I just did it anyway. Did starting the show feel risky in that way? It felt. Or was it kind of like you were like uh, being able to run an experiment in like a pretty controlled lab when you were still getting a salary? Yeah, it felt most. It felt a lot like that, which is just like that is just that's what makes it such a dream that I've had had that opportunity and had that support from my employers. The thing that I remember about starting Death, Sex, and Money, it was it was more the moments when I was like alone with a Pro Tools session, with this tape, and not knowing how to cut it, not not knowing how to structure an episode, like what does the music sound like, and feeling really alone in that. But that was more like the existential fear of creative isolation. That was, <laughs> <laughs> that was less like, I might starve. That was just like, I've, I've walked off a different plank yeah. here. <laughs> uh, some questions for you. Someone who's like, I mean, you've been in public radio for a long time, broadcast radio. How are you doing the podcast differently 
than you would be if it was, you know, on the air. On the air. I mean, the the first thing is the clock. Like when you're producing something for air, it has this hole that it needs to fill. And so, you know, I was producing in newsrooms, you know, 30-second spots, 90-second spots, uh, three-and-a-half-minute feature, five-minute feature, maybe a seven-minute feature if it was like a deep dive in something. So it was just kind of a this built-in structure, and all of that is gone in podcasting. And then when you're doing long-form radio, you know, you've got to hit like 58, 30 uh, 58 minutes, 30 seconds, and have breaks for the announcers to come in and uh, have to have like a billboard at the top where you announce what's going to be in the episode. And so all of that you don't do in podcasting in the same way or you don't have to. So it's really, you know, freeing. But then it was like one of the first questions was like, how long is a Death, Sex and Money episode? Yeah. What are we shooting for? And there's a pretty significant range, like some are 25 minutes, some are 50. yeah. The 50 minutes are rare. Like, they, I think the average episode is about, you know, 20 to 28. Um, and that was by design. It was like I wanted them to be an experience that you could hopefully listen to in one sitting, whether that's like one commute or one, you know, three-mile run around the park. So it kind of shot for like 30 minutes or under. And that was just totally made up arbitrary decision but I think we like, that sounds good let's try for that right I mean I feel like when when you're uh, facing such like a blank canvas you got to make some arbitrary yeah. decisions you got to find some way to, to limit yourself yeah, to give yourself some some constraints because otherwise it's just like whoa. Um, <laughs> what were the other constraints other things were like we I knew we had to have a mid-show break um, and that was the function of just like having a place to like talk directly to the audience and then also having a space should the show ever get an audience like having a space where we call it in public radio underwriting you call it advertisers um <laughs> where that could go uh so that was a little bit of a of, of a structure and then the music i just was like i i wanted to have this like road trip <laughs> groovy vibe Maybe a gospel choir. I mean, it was all over the place. Like, I want it to feel like, kind of, I don't know. And I just basically said exactly those words to to a guy, the Reverend John Delore, who at the time was engineering for Studio 360, and he plays music, and he was just like, I got something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and so he brings this song that he had recorded uh, with Steve Lewis with this other guy, and we listened to it, and we he mixed like a, a kind of template for what could be the top of the show, and it was just like, it worked. Yeah, that's not my gift. Like he just brought his magic, and it was just like, thank you. Like that that was a benefit of starting a podcast in a radio station is you can just like grab people in the hallway and say, like, will you listen to this? Right. There's just a lot of like talent around. Yeah. A year in or almost a year in, how close do you think the show is like hewn to your original vision for it? Um, I think when I look back at the original proposal, I had sort of proposed like a radio show. Like I was like, we'll do, I thought maybe we would have a death segment, a sex segment and a money segment and that would be like a different, maybe what was an interview and maybe what was a produced piece, uh, radio feature. And But I like this version so much better. It's just less, everything doesn't have to be so literal, Anna. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just like, <laughs> so I, I, I like that. It doesn't always have to be like a math equation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you started your podcast in an interesting uh, moment for mm, podcasts. Absolutely. Podcast boom times. Yes. I wonder whether you uh, feel as though perhaps we are in a podcast bubble. Like, do you think this is the peak or are we only, is it only getting started? Is it awesome or terrible? Um, I, I think it's <laughs> like for me. So we started in May of 2014. And that's when the show launched. And it launched basically because of This American Life. Um, it This American Life aired a version of the episode about my love life with Senator Alan Simpson. Yeah, you got wife. the Ira Glass bump. Yeah, which was like just, I mean, I, I can't, like I, it was just generous. Like there's no reason why, I mean, they, they aired my story, but then after my story, he just announced this that this new show existed and that was available on iTunes and to go find it and... He didn't have to do that. And then you hit number one in iTunes. Yeah. I mean, when Ira Glass says, like, maybe you want to check this out, like, people check it out. And that must have been amazing. It was, uh, like, when I first heard it, I was standing in my living room and I burst into tears. Like, it's like, 
when you have these heroes and you feel outside of this world of cool radio, and then you hear the giant Ira Glass like say, this new thing that Anna Salespins were working on, maybe you want to listen to it. It just was like really emotional. I don't understand the like radio high school cafeteria. What's what's cool radio and what were you doing before this? Well, I mean... Like, are you sitting at the cool kids table in the in the cafeteria I don't now? know about that. But I, I mean, speaking of like for having started in public radio in a small station in West Virginia and... Um, you know, to have to have decided to go into radio because of shows like Fresh Air and This American Life. And, you know, you know, it's like Chicago and New York is where all these cool kids are. And like um, and there is a little bit of like, you know, when you're working in the newsroom, it's like I was covering news. And then there's these other group of radio producers who get to do, you know, the art Right, the, the art, radio lab. The artful radio. And, of course, that's not true. There's plenty of really incredible creative radio storytelling happening in newsrooms everywhere. But, you know, it's just, it meant a lot. It meant a lot. I think you are a cool kid. You should know that. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, so that was that was huge. And it really did. It was like the show shot up to the top of iTunes and we had this audience that was ready for more episodes. And we had one other episode done, and the rest we had to just start making. So it was like, oh. And I think the good thing we 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 noticed, I mean, it was like that we hung on to that audience. We hung on to that audience. They didn't go away. They kept listening to the shows. And then Serial happened in October. And that was just like you just noticed that all of a sudden there were more people finding podcasts like we noticed it in our numbers we noticed it you know you noticed it in conversation about podcasting you startup started and gimlet was starting so there was kind of this buzz around new business models around podcasting um so all of that's been happening as the show you know is just a few months old and and so i i feel like i still have conversations with you know my my parents friends who are like what i i haven't figured out podcasts yet and you know, I'll show them on their phone how to find them, and they'll start listening. Like I'll hear later. Like they're they're listening. I've sent so many people that like great Ira Glass video about yeah, podcasting. I love that. Um, with his, and Mary was that her name? Yeah. His neighbor. So I feel like I don't think it's a bubble. I think it's like an acknowledgement that peep just like people's consumption habits with television have changed to where now they sit in front of the television and find exactly what they want to watch and press play. That's happening more and more with radio as people figure out how to do that, um, whether it's with their smartphones and, you know, listening to podcasts or plugging in through their cars. So I don't think it's a I don't think it's a bubble. And more and more like, you know, when when D- Death, Sex and Money started, the second question I would always get was like, so, you know, when are, when are you going to become a radio show? Right. That was like the prize was to yeah, like get on there. It's like, do you, you know, and I would, pe- reporters would ask me, do you feel like you're kind of in the like JV league? <laughs> I mean, I'm it's going certainly, on just, uh, crossing off a question. Yeah. Quickly. I mean, that's like, it's a hard question to hear. And certainly there's a part of that that's like, you know, um, like there's giants at WNYC on the radio and, and I'm just learning how to do what I'm doing. But I think more and more it's like, the recognition that the the audience you can reach and the relationship you can have with your audience through podcasting is different than broadcasting. And it's like, I get emails from people in like, you know, just all over the world who are who are going to iTunes, looking at charts, finding the show. And they never would have heard the show if it was just on the radio and on terrestrial radio. So that's really cool. Uh, you listen to these shows by yourself. Yeah. And it's a very, like, it's a very, I mean, this word gets used too much with this stuff, but it's like a very intimate medium. And I think if people didn't have that kind of one-to-one relationship with the show, maybe they would be less inclined to send in those voice memos about cheating, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's been just, I mean, the word intimate is something that gets used a lot for radio, too. I mean, just just hearing people's voices is something that's like, you know, hits that hits that feeling. I think it's just even more so with podcasting because you are, it's like you and your earbuds um, and and you're choosing this special time when you listen to this show. Like, you know, but I continue to be surprised at, at what our listeners are sharing with us. It's just stunning. And, it, and I think it's partially the medium and I think partially it's like listeners responding to this sense of like having permission to like talk about stuff. It was when listeners started 
just sending in emails and sending in voice memos that I was like, oh, they get what this show is trying to do in a way that I couldn't, you know, they get it. Like, I'm still sort of figuring it out, but they're with me. Yeah. You know, I was going to say, I mean, I think uh, part of it might be those things, but part of it's you. Well, that's nice. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I feel my relationship to, to the listeners is, is very sacred, and it's a privilege to get to hear the stories that they share. Well, it's been a privilege to uh, have you here, Anna. So early in the morning, uh, <laughs> thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Times are hard. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. All the episodes that Anna and I just talked about, they're available in the show notes. Uh, but really, just go subscribe to Death, Sex, and Money. Uh, the show's fantastic. It's going to make you a better person. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Speaking of podcasts that you should be listening to, Jenna is producing some awesome new shows uh, at BuzzFeed. Another round is the show that has stolen my heart, Heaven Tracy Thank you, guys. Uh, our intern this week is Rachel Mabe. Thanks also to our sponsors, The Great Courses, Marketing Profs University, Tiny Letter, and Wealthfront. Go to wealthfront.com slash longform. See what they can do for you and your money. We'll see you next week. You have sent made home early like a thousand times before. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.